0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government,
1: and back-to-school blues. The Washington Post reports that the National Association of Evangelicals has unveiled a sweeping report on global climate change, laying out what the authors call the biblical basis for environmental activism to help spur fellow evangelicals to address the planetary crisis. The Fellowship of Christian Athletes chapter in San Jose, California, was banned by the school district for demanding members sign an anti-gay pledge. Huo Nelly says the Ninth U.S. Circuit Board of Appeals, which ruled 2-1 to that it's perfectly fine for an official public high school student club to discriminate. And, oh look, the majority opinion judges were both appointed by Donald J. Trump. Hashtag sad. And speaking of education and discrimination, in the wake of the shocking SCOTUS decision funneling taxpayer funds to religious schools in Maine, only one school has thus far taken advantage of the pennies from heaven. Why, you ask? The other eligible religious schools are balking at the state non-discrimination laws they'd have to follow if they took the funds. That's right. They want
0: the taxpayer's dollar, but not the taxpayer's values. Hashtag also sad. Happy Labor Day weekend. For a lot of us, this summer flew by. And it's hard to believe the end of a season traditionally set aside for relaxation and renewal is already here. So as we gear up for the approaching midterm elections, more decisions by the Supreme Court and challenges perhaps not yet imagined. After all, who would have imagined we'd be living in a post row nation where a raid on an ex-president's residence would be needed to reclaim national secrets And religious leaders would be denouncing investigations into the unprecedented assault on our democracy that happened on January 6th, 2021. Let's take some time to revisit some interviews from past shows that offer a deeper look at who we are as a nation and as a society. And here, with a favorite past conversation, is Reverend Welton Gaddy.
2: Reverend James Forbes, welcome to State of Belief. And I'm happy to be with you, Weldon. A lot of people ask me uh, a lot of the time, and I bet they ask you too, what is progressive Protestantism, or what is progressive religion?
3: Well, I would go to the Bible first, which is not always the way you would answer that question. But there is in it this expression from Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples when he's getting ready to leave them, I have many things to say to you, however, I cannot say it now, but the spirit of truth will lead you into all truth. That is my jumping off point for understanding progressive Protestantism and also progressive Christianity and progressive religion. It is based on the affirmation of certain basic principles that have come with the tradition. But it understands that tradition is an evolving dynamic and therefore people must be open to new data, new insights as they seek to live out their existence. Science gives us new information, psychology, history, even biology as these social sciences give new insights and even literature new insights. A progressive learns to incorporate new insights into their understanding. And they want to, shall I say, progress in the development of tradition so that there is relevance to the contemporary age. A progressive Mm -hmm. always is heard to say, go forth, don't stand still, embrace the future with confidence that the Lord who gave you a mind expects you to use that as well as you use your heart in devotion to God.
2: Uh, Jim, you know and I know that you you cause some trouble for some people because you break stereotypes. I mean, here you are beginning to talk about progressive religion and you talk about the Holy Spirit and then in the very first of your book, you jump into a chapter on sexuality. Now that keeps people off balance.
3: Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> if if they're dealing with sexuality, they are likely from time to time to be off balance. <laughs> sexuality is such a powerful gift from God. It is so powerful that it can sometimes even... Serve as a surrogate God, people can build their lives around it and their values become subsistent or subservient to its demand. My thinking is that any religion that cannot help us to know how to steer our way between the high standards to which we are called and the relentless energy. Impulse and intrigue of sexuality. If it if it can't help us to get through the Scylla and Charybdis of that kind of of a, of a force, then it's lacking in what's necessary because that's only one of the major
2: problems. Uh, Jim, this subject has been a part of your pilgrimage. You you talk about it in the book as uh, a, a subject on which. Your views have changed, particularly about homosexuality and equality for uh, LGBT people. Will you talk briefly about your evolution here? I grew up
3: in the Black Pentecostal Church in the Bible Belt, and in that context, preachers often would rail against people because they had a different sexual orientation. If you... In my childhood uh, church, if you were even thought to be gay or lesbian, then you, you you would expect that sermons were going to be preached about you and you were going to be preached into hell. I grew up in that and therefore had this really great fear about homosexuality and anybody that I thought was that way, I would want to shun them because, I mean, those people are clearly going to hell. Mm-hmm. Well, something about that felt in contrast to the spirit of acceptance and the spirit of love that I thought I heard them preaching about Jesus. So for me, I started to ask, okay, so these are the rules and regulations, but what about the spirit of Christ? As I moved in my educational uh, development, I came to understand you're going to have to make a decision. First, you got to figure out what kind of God Are we serving? Is this God who's very punitive, or is this God very accepting? Uh, Is this God the God who simply wants me to make everybody else the extension of my image, or does that God have space for folks that are different from me? As I developed, I came to believe first about God, that God loves us, that God made us all, and clearly that God understands us. And I even came to believe that maybe God made some folks different from me so as to help me begin to understand that I am not the paragon of virtue such that everything should be modeled on me. If I can only love, appreciate, and affirm folks like me, the King James Version would say, what thank have you. (laughs) So I started to say, my God is much more likely to draw a circle to include than to exclude. And then science helped me out a lot when it made it very clear that, yes, the issue of choice may be at points a part of what determines our sexuality, but fundamentally our sexuality is a part of our genetic inheritance. That is, that which gives us delight, That which is a a positive fantasy for us, that which gives us our attraction, is not just a matter of folks that maybe I'll be gay, maybe I'll be uh, straight. That there is much more of a deposit in our genes of the kinds of persons we would be in regards to the approach we would take to our sexual expression. That made me say that just like nobody can tell me to stop being black so I can be more righteous in their eyes. Nor can I tell somebody to stop being gay so that they can be more conveniently configured as I would wish them to be configured in my straight way. I think I'm a better Christian for having the capacity to let God love gay people as much as I'm happy that God loves me.
2: My guest today is Reverend James Forbes. We're talking about his new book, Whose Gospel? Concise Guide to Progressive Protestantism. Jim, thanks for staying with us. Pleasure. I want to acknowledge your chapter on race and racial equality. In that uh, narrative, you share a personal story about the first time that you were able to eat at uh, a a lunch counter in the South. What happened that day?
3: That day, January 11, 1961, was the day that I decided to go down and for the first time eat at the Woolworth lunch counter. Before that, we would get our food from a window because black people and white people were not supposed to sit down together in places of public accommodation. But my brother, who was the president of Shaw University, had led a march and protest And the Woolworth counter was open to black people. I went down to buy myself, in the old southern way, a a hot dog with mustard relish and ketchup and a big orange. (laughs) When I sat down at that counter, there was a white woman to my right. She had her food there, but immediately as I sat down, she got up and ran out of the store. I was so disturbed until I really don't know, even now, whether I even ever ordered my my meal. So I went home and my mother always told us when something happens to you, don't let it get the best of you. Find a creative way to express it. So I did. I wrote this poem. Why did she move when I sat down? Surely she could not tell so soon that my Saturday bath had worn away or that savage passion had pushed me for a rape. Perhaps it was the cash she carried in her purse. She could not risk a theft so early in the month, and who knows that on tomorrow it fall her lot to drink her coffee from a cup my darkened hands had clutched. So horrible was that moment I too should have run away, for prejudice has the odor of a dying beast, whether racist or rapist, both fall in the savage class, and the greatest theft of all is to rob one's right to be. And that's what I wrote. But the real issue, I mean, the real uh, beauty of the story, it seems to me, is that 30 years later, when I was the pastor at the Riverside Church, one of my white parishioners came to me and said, you know, I wanted to see you because I was working through some of my papers and I ran across this letter that you wrote me back in 1961. And in it, there was this poem. Question. Why would I send that poem to a white woman? Answer, she was working at the United Church, had programs for black youth, and had convinced all of us that she really loved us, that she really cared for us, that it mattered to her what hurt us, and also she was invested in making sure that we would be first-class citizens just like anybody else. The fact that there were two women in that town, Raleigh, North Carolina, one, who at my presence ran away. The other, giving of her energy to help me affirm my existence as a child of God. That helped me to overcome the tendency to be racialistic in my thinking. You can't put all white people in one basket. You can't put all black people in one basket. It has kept me open to say, in each race, black or white or Latino or Asian or whatever, look at the person, because it is possible that there are always people in these groups that will divide, that, that will in some way defy the stereotypes we may have developed about them.
0: We're just getting started with this Labor Day weekend edition of the Best of State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. There's more coming right up. Here again, Rev. Welton Gaddy.
2: In her book, The Great Emergence, religious historian Phyllis Tickle observes that every 500 years or so, the Christian faith holds what she dubs a rummage sale, a way for the Church to reevaluate itself, keep what it needs to keep, shed what it doesn't. In her timeline, Tickle points to the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire around 500 the Great Schism around 1000, and then in 1500, the Great Reformation, that pivotal moment that began when Martin Luther questioned the nature of his religion and how it was practiced. And now, here we are, five centuries after Luther and his 95 Theses, and Christianity is undoubtedly in a time of flux, some would even say crisis. We've witnessed splits in the Episcopal and Lutheran churches over the question of homosexuality, and denominations across the board are struggling with any number of issues and reporting record losses in membership. So, is it time for another rummage sale? Or, as my next guest puts it, is it time for the 96th thesis? Brian McLaren is an author, a speaker, a pastor. His numerous books include A New Kind of Christian, and everything must change. Now he's back with another one, the latest is called A New Kind of Christianity. Ten questions that are transforming the faith. Brian McLaren, welcome back to State of Belief.
4: It's great to be back at State of Belief, and thanks for uh, for that good introduction.
2: Your book begins with a realization that you shared with others in different Christian communities. You say you all agreed that something isn't working in the way we're doing christianity anymore uh, what brought you to that conclusion
4: well i, I suppose uh, a number of things Strong, the strongest w- would be my own experience as a pastor um, what i when i would sit across the table with someone uh, across the desk from with from someone who uh, had begun visiting my church and they would begin asking me their questions and and i would I would think about the kind of answers that I had been taught or or had been given myself when I asked questions. I just realized something wasn't matching up, you know. I didn't have uh, good answers to a lot of the the good questions that were being raised.
2: Well, I want to get into uh, the details of some of the ten questions that you pose in the book. But first, I have to point out that we're talking about very large questions here, questions about the nature of God, the message of the gospel. And it makes me think that you're saying that Christians basically need to go back to the drawing board and ask, uh, what do we believe? Is that a fair assessment?
4: yeah I think it is a fair assessment I I I mean on the one hand I'm not recommending that we hop skip and jump over 2,000 years of church history and just ignore all of that and go back to the Bible and now we'll get it all right and fix it all up I I don't want to leave anything behind I want to learn from all of our history but but I do think we've got a number of reasons uh, these days to say um, well well, let's go back and try to get a, a fresh vision of what Jesus really was about and and um, and let's look back at our history and see not only the great heroes and the great breakthroughs uh, and and the great resources uh, that have come from our faith but let's also be honest about some of those more painful things some of the kind of some some of the moral failures of our history and let's try to learn from those mistakes as well
2: well you begin with the narrative of the bible itself uh, many christians and, and probably non christians believe the bible Uh, to begin with what we call the fall when Adam and Eve uh, ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Some people say it was an apple. Uh, The human race then is condemned to a life of suffering because of that uh, original sin, which in some way influences people even today. Those who repent uh, end up in heaven. Those who aren't, quote, saved end up in hell. But I don't think that's the narrative as you see it, is it?
4: Um, well, that's the narrative I was taught. Um, but what, what I've been doing, you know, it's funny when you're a pastor and you preach every Sunday and sometimes many times a week, you actually spend a lot of time in the Bible. And, and what I began to, to feel was that uh, when I would read a story like the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and eating of the fruit... Um, There were two layers uh, of activity going on. One was what's really what's there in the text, and then the other is all of the uh, the the interpretations that I was that I inherited and I was taught uh, that I would bring to the text. And um, one of the things I think all of us who are serious students of the Bible want to do is we want to realize that our interpretation isn't exactly the same thing as the text, and that there might be other ways to read the text.
2: I really like the analogy that you use in the book. You say the Bible is not a constitution, it's more like a library.
4: Well, that's really one of the seminal ideas uh, that I hope will be helpful from the book. Um, a lot of us have been taught uh, to read the Bible as if it were a constitution, and it's not surprising we would do that. We you know, we live in constitutional democracies And constitutions are very sacred to us In the political realm And, and so we would It's no surprise we pay the Bible A compliment by, by treating it As if it were a constitution The problem is uh, When the Bible was written There was no such thing as a constitution mm. And uh, uh, so to to put the Bible in that category Is, is a category mistake uh, um, and, and what I found to be a much... Um, more uh, respectful way of of understanding the Bible is to say is to let the Bible be what it is a collection of documents uh, written by something like 40 people over a couple thousand well from many centuries to uh, to to millennia uh, depending on the scholarship you follow uh, but so in, in that way it ends up being a library and and. Uh, for us as Christians, we believe it's a unique library. In fact, we use the highest language we can use to describe it. We we believe it's an inspired library, but the purpose of a library is different uh, from the purpose of a constitution. And one simple way to say it is, a constitution tries to remove all debate and uh, uh, to just present one clear interpretation. And even trying to do that, of course, constitutional lawyers have a lot of arguments. But a library tries to preserve key arguments. Uh, it, it, it tries to preserve different voices in, in the conversation that goes on in a culture. Mm-hmm. And when we allow the Bible to be read that way, suddenly it becomes, to me, a lot more dramatic. And, and I think we feel we're being more fair to the Bible itself.
2: My guest is Brian McLaren. We're talking about his new book, A New Kind of Christianity you say that uh, Jesus has been the victim of identity theft. Um, I want to find out what that means, because uh, those who see Jesus as as the ultimate warrior type, you mentioned those, but then there are also these people uh, who hold the viewpoint that um, uh, Jesus was one who preached to the poor and advocated social justice. Uh, How does that—what is his identity?
4: (laughs) Well, you know, there's, there's another one of those uh, arguments that have been going on for centuries. But,
2: and, yeah, and you've but got two I, minutes to answer it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> to totally solve it for the rest of
2: history.
4: <laughs> well, Maybe I could say this. I, I, what I'm recommending we do is focus on the portraits of Jesus that were given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if we focus on those portraits of Jesus um, uh, and let those predominate, I think that will resolve an awful lot of our problems. One of the main uh, complications in in getting a picture of Jesus is that people take one chapter from the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and they use that chapter, I think they misinterpret that chapter, but they use it to overturn the whole portrait of Jesus that we get in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, That Jesus is, is a man of peace and nonviolence and reconciliation. And this portrait that I think they misinterpret from the book of Revelation is a guy with a sword in his hand and just another, another religious warrior. Mm. Uh, so you know, th- th- there would be one example of, uh, of how, uh, how it really is a life and death matter, uh, mm-hmm. how we interpret and understand the Bible, and especially our understanding of Jesus.
2: Brian, it's always good to talk with you, and thanks for joining us again on State of Belief.
4: Uh, Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for all the good you do for the people who listen.
0: There's lots more still ahead on this Best Of show. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to the best of State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. I'm Rabbi Jack Moline, and here's the Reverend Welting Gaddy with a favorite conversation from the past.
2: There's an ancient Sufi maxim that says, when we see with the heart, all masks fall down. That's a sentiment that has guided my next guest through his career as a celebrated musician and a dedicated activist. For 20 years, Salman Ahmad has led the South Asian rock band Janoon. They became the first rock band to play at the U.N. General Assembly Hall in New York, and Salman has collaborated with Melissa Etheridge and Deepak Chopra on a peace campaign called Ring the Bells. While in his home country of Pakistan, he's seen his music repeatedly banned, and his message has drawn the fire of politicians and religious fundamentalists. But being banned from the radio and blacklisted from television didn't stop him as he launched what he's called a cultural jihad, a revolution to take back his country's roots of acceptance and coexistence. Salman Ahmad chronicles his efforts in a new book, called Rock and Roll Jihad, a Muslim rock star's revolution. And I am delighted to say that Salman Ahmad joins me right now. Welcome to State of Belief.
5: Thank you for having me, Wilton. It's an honor to be on your show.
2: Now, I, I want to point out, so people don't get preoccupied with this r- right up front, that uh, you use the word revolution and the word jihad in, in the title of the book. And jihad Unfortunately, is a word that many Americans either misinterpret or, uh, or insist on misinterpreting. Uh, but what you're talking about here is not violence. It's quite the opposite. It's peace. It, you're talking about a revolution fought not with guns but with guitars, right?
5: Well, you know, I used the J word um, uh, against the advice of uh, my publisher because I, th- you know, I felt, uh, Wilton, that. Uh, Jihad, the word, was hijacked uh, by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda and has been used uh, and misused and abused. And now it seems like, you know, it's just stolen. And it's it's, it's used for something which brings the images of sort of violence and fear and ugliness. But the way I understood it growing up was jihad, the word in Muslim culture, means to strive to overcome your ego, to overcome your limitations, to lift society up, to lift yourself up. It's a positive word. And I feel that you know, uh, it, it, it was a sinister case of identity theft that when the, when the terrorists you know, attacked the Twin Towers and the other buildings on that terrible day on 9-11, not only did they hijack jihad, but they hijacked Islam, mm-hmm. Muslims. And, and I think it's about time that we rescued this word which for me means a a, a struggle for good.
2: Good for you. You were born in Pakistan, but uh, you spent your early teenage years in New York. That's where you heard the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. You first joined a band. But when you went back to Pakistan in the early 80s, you found a Pakistan that was quite different from the one you left, one that was not necessarily hospitable to your dreams of becoming a rock star. Will you... Uh, talk with us a little bit about the atmosphere you found when you went back to Pakistan.
5: Yeah, it was like landing on a different planet almost. Uh, you know, I, as you say, you know, I, I went through junior high and high school here in, in Rockland County, New York. was in a garage band. My dreams were, you know, outrageous dreams of teenagers. You know, I wanted to be a rock star. And then, you know, I went back to study medicine in Lahore at a time where there was a military dictatorship, which didn't allow any music on the radio, any music on TV, live performances. You know, do them at your own peril. Because, as I tell in the book, my first ever attempt at playing guitar publicly uh, was um, aborted. <laughs> you know, I was uh, 17, 18 year, uh, years old at the time, and I just wanted to, you know, people to just see my talent. And I there was this talent show uh, organized by medical students. And we, we did it in secret because we knew that you know, it was dangerous to do so. So I get up on stage after a juggler, uh, <laughs> and I get my, I'm looking at my five minutes of fame, and I close my eyes, and I play uh, this heavy metal guitar solo called Eruption, which was by Eddie Van Halen, you know the mm-hmm. 80s guitar hero. And as I was doing that, I had my eyes closed, and I was tapping away with my fingers, and I started hearing shrieks and screams. So I'm telling myself, "Wow, I'm I'm making a huge impact." <laughs> but what what it, had what it happened was that um, the, the extremist gate crashed. These kids were, you know, the morality police, the, the music police, and they started screaming, you know, "Fahashi, Fahashi," which mm. means, uh, you know, vulgarity. And one of them, you know, with a crazed look in his eye, came up to the stage, took my Les Paul guitar, and smashed it on the ground. Mm. And that was my wake-up call. I said, "Where have I landed?" And the other thing I thought at that time was that, "Wow!" I thought rock musicians were supposed to smash their <laughs> instruments. <laughs>
2: <laughs> why didn't you? Why didn't you quit?
0: Well,
5: you know, here, here's the thing. I, I guess you know, my mother is a Pashtun, and and, and so am I. Uh, you know, so, so I have mixed ethnicity. Uh, uh, I, I'm Pashtun from my mother's side, Punjabi from my father's, and. The thing that's traditionally seen is that you can get us to do anything with love, <laughs> hmm. you know. But the moment you you start breaking things and you start threatening, there's another part of us which comes out, which is like you know I'm uh, I'm gonna defy you, mm-hmm. and if you want me to stop mu- playing music, I'm gonna do more of it, uh, and and that's what happened during my years there.
2: Salman was social activism always a part of your understanding of music, or was that something that developed as your career developed?
5: Well, you know, if you grow up in Muslim culture, if you grow up in Pakistan, it, there's a very strong, uh, important attached to social service, charity, uh, you know, much like Christianity. Mm-hmm. And when I grew up, I had a, you know, role model in my mother, Shaheen, who did so much community service, uh, you know, she spent, you know, weeks with uh, with friends and, and relatives, old relatives who were suffering with diseases, and, you know, she, the, my mother was a big, huge um, influence on me in that sense, and then, you know, the pressure of societal pressure of being a doctor, because, you know, it, it, like being a musician was not respected at all. Uh, it it still is not as respected, uh, one would say. And I kept being sort of brainwashed by my parents, you're going to become a doctor. You're going to become a doctor. Mm. And one of the reasons I went back to study medicine was because they saw that my musical passion was out of control. So uh, while I was in med school, I went through five years of med school, I saw, you know, people living in extreme poverty, not getting the treatment that they deserved, and that must have also seeped into my consciousness, because when I left, uh, you know, I told my parents, give me one year to play music. Hmm. And, you know, I didn't tell them how many days in that year. <laughs> so, so, so but, but all this music that I've, you know, performed, written, has, is connected to healing, and, and it, it, it's, it's got a positive message.
2: I'm speaking today with Salman Ahmad, the founder of the rock band Janoon and the author of the new memoir, Rock and Roll Jihad, A Muslim rock star's Revolution. Janun has sold more than 30 million records in the past 20 years, but Salman Ahmad has seen his songs targeted by political leaders like Benazir Bhutto and even banned from the radio by former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. I asked Salman what reasons these politicians gave for banning his music.
5: Well, there's something about long-haired guitars <laughs> 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 that um, you know they were fine with us singing songs which are romantic songs, you know, which just were happy songs. But the moment you commented on you know political corruption or uh, uh, you know social commentary, mm-hmm. that's where we ra- ran into trouble. We were on a tour of India. Uh, when both countries tested nuclear weapons, and I made a statement, uh, Welton, which said, uh, you know, we want cultural fusion between India and Pakistan, not nuclear fusion. Mm. And and uh, and also, I wrote a song called Accountability. It mm-hmm. with a video which criticized the political, the corrupt elite, the political elite. And so they saw me, you know, they saw the ban as troublemakers, and they banned us. Uh, uh, you know, for one pretense or the other, they said, oh, you know, they're traitors because they want reunification of India and Pakistan, which mm-hmm. is not what we were saying. We were saying that, you know, both neighbors need to live together in peace.
2: Mm-hmm. That's the government side of it. But, but you also had the privilege of having the religious fundamentalists attack you as well. They found fault with your music.
5: Their criticism was that it's sacrilege to mix... Uh, 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 you know Sufi poems, uh, uh, which are spiritual poems, you know, for the love of God and for mm-hmm. love of humanity, with rock music, you know, mm. uh, and, and so, and, and the thing was that's what made Janoon's music unique was that on the one hand it was influenced by Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and U2, but on the other hand it was deeply grounded in, in, in tradition, and, and and it a positive message of unity, which you know as you know like. The people who follow Sufi Islam, you know, it's, it's about nonviolence, it's mm-hmm. about seeking um, self-knowledge, it's about seeking oneness with God, and so a lot of the religious extremists who, I have to say, are a minority, but a noisy, violent minority, mm-hmm. saw this as a threat to their power. So they try to ban us as well.
2: Salman, I am deeply grateful for you coming on, and I am totally supportive of what you're about in the world, and I thank you for being with us on State of Belief.
5: Thank you. It was great jamming with you.
2: How do you make a living? If a young person whom you know and care for requested your counsel on Choosing a vocation. How likely is it that you would recommend that the young person become a poet? My guess is that most of us would not even think about recommending that choice for a life of work or any other profession related to the arts. Let's be realistic, we would say. You have to make a living Continuing the hypothetical conversation, how would you answer if the student asked, what do you mean when you say, make a living? Perhaps no part of our lives challenges our quality of life, including our spirituality, more than the work we do and the work that we want to do. My mind races to images of a friend from the past who despised his work in a factory, not because he wanted a less demanding job, but because he wanted a far more difficult job. I saw this man's spirit flogged flat because he had to work on an assembly line in order to have enough money to make financial ends meet while grieving because he could not devote himself to his calling that would involve tilling the soil and caring for plants that would require 15 hours a day on a tractor. I think of a woman working in a restaurant trying to collect enough tips that she can pay her bills by bussing tables while longing to get back to her work as an artist, devoting whatever amount of time was necessary to create images of beauty that would cause her spirit to soar. I think of a single mother, aching to be at home with her young children, every moment while she was seeking to excel in a profession that would bring her promotions and enough money to provide adequately for her family in the absence of a responsible husband and father. I think of a lawyer who dreams of being a musician, finishing his day at the firm so he can rush home and practice his music. Scores of people do not have the joy of doing the work that they want to do while longing for the fulfillment that comes in doing the work that they really feel called to do. The necessity of more income financially can stunt spiritual growth as well as consume time and energy to an extent that people cannot do what they feel they were made to do because of the heaviness of fatigue. How do people make a living in such a situation? All around us are individuals that have jobs but lack the ability to make a living, holistically speaking. Several years ago, I read a book entitled Crossing the Unknown Sea – Work as a Pilgrimage of Identity. I've reread that volume several times, wanting to be sure that I understand it. David White, the book's author, wrote about the subject of work using imagery drawn from poetry. Listen, please, to White's definition. Work An opportunity for discovering and shaping the place where the self meets the world. How we handle our work and how we make a living involve our capacity to do our work in a manner that enables us to know ourselves better and to find ways to be at peace with how we relate to other people and to the world. Our work can either make us or break us in relation to who we are. Jobs are about money. Work is about life. But the art of making a living also centers on the impact of our work on others, something that has been evident in the past year in ways we haven't seen in a long time. The selfless work of health care workers called upon to risk their own health and that of their families to treat fellow Americans, including those who deny the pandemic, who actively oppose masks and vaccinations, and who criticize the medical establishment as corrupt and mendacious. There have been situations where politicians and hospital managers have betrayed their duties. But despite unfairness and neglect, the frontline workers continued to labor. I'm also thinking of the security personnel stepping up to stem the crisis of January 6th at the Capitol building, police officers and other professionals putting their lives on the line to defend our democracy itself, because that is their job and their calling. Some gave their very lives in fulfilling their commitment to all of us. That is true patriotism, and it too is their labor. Then there are the journalists who continue to fearlessly report on the events undermining our government and society, exposing corruption and lies and people drinking horse medicine to cure COVID-19. This is a calling, but it too is labor in service to all of us. Public servants, emergency workers, all of those who kept the wheels of our society and economy turning through the unprecedented crises of the past year or more, we can't thank each one individually. I wish we could. But we can recommit to a recognition of the immense value non-famous, non-tweeting workers bring to the lives of each of us and— to demanding that fair treatment of working people remain an essential cornerstone of our values as a nation. Work truly is for the good of the world, and for our good as well. Each of us needs to work, but there is this additional thought. None of us needs to work to the point That we wear out our lives and desensitize our ability to feel, to play, to pray, to relate to others, and to love lavishly. Over the years, I've asked countless leaders, activists, and public figures some version of this question How do you keep doing what you're doing? How do you keep from burning out? The consistency of the answers is remarkable. People known for selfless labor in the service of their neighbor or their nation bluntly say, I take a month sabbatical every year. I make a retreat. I travel with family. I make sure I disconnect entirely for several weeks every summer. Nobody just keeps working without self-care and taking time away. And some of the most effective leaders make sure they take the time away to enable them to be most effective in their work. So whatever version of self-care is available to each of us, let's make sure we do it. After all, self-care is part of caring for creation, isn't it? This Labor Day weekend, there are scores of rescue workers busy in parts of our country struck by deadly storms. There are countless Americans foregoing the holiday to work extra shifts at hospitals and at jobs keeping the rest of us safe. There are others taking a well-deserved break, getting ready for the work that awaits in the weeks ahead. Happy Labor Day weekend, friends. This observance has taken on a profound new importance this year. Let's keep it in mind for ourselves and
0: for each other. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Please consider making a contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and be a part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Rabbi Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop,
5: children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going